Hey, welcome to this week's edition of Terry's Talk and the Cleveland.com podcast with David Campbell, your host, sports manager at Cleveland.com, and Terry Pluto, sports columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, how are you doing? I am well, David. Good. I know you're a big hiker. I saw a thing today in Asia. They caught a 13-foot-long stingray. It weighs 661 pounds, so be careful when you're out there hiking. You never well, know you what you're, what you're going to run Asia, into. Yeah. <laughs> so don't go hiking in Asia. I forget which country no, it was in. No, it's just, uh, I'm sure there's some great places to hike in Asia, but uh, you know, the thing about hiking is, I mean, even a lot of spots in this country, if you're not careful where you're going and looking at, you know, what the trail is, the weather is, that kind of stuff. I'm not talking just a lot of walk in Metro parks, but even like Southern Ohio or places, parts of the Appalachian trail, you get in big trouble. You really do. Uh, yeah, I especially if you're not watching what this, time of day it I is. Too. Listen to a, see if this is a faith column. What you learn from hiking, it's like rule number one. Now, you're on a trail, and there's all these marks on the trees, you know, red, blue. You'll see the, the little things. But you can go along, and all of a sudden, some of those fell down, and you get lost for, like, may just take five minutes or whatever. Now you don't see one. That I don't know about you. When I get lost, the last thing I want to do is go back the way I came. So now Boring. you start guessing. And boy, are you in trouble. I remember, forgot where we were one time. And, uh, well, that's right. Remember, I, I wrote a column about in uh, last year in Arizona, I got slightly lost, you know, uh, because that, that trail wasn't marked. That was just kind of like, here's a trail. You can see it. Go for it. But Roberta was the one. So now we need to go back the way we came because that's rule number one of hiking. And eventually you sort of find something familiar. So it's kind of sometimes in life, we hate to go back and do it again. Yeah. And so by the way, which leads us to the guardians. That <laughs> was a long way to go, but we got it. It is. <laughs> so when the guardians looked at their team from last year to this year, they thought they made a couple of mistakes when they've signed Rosario and Hernandez, because they felt, that those guys were kind of blocking some of the younger players they wanted to look at. I mean, part of it was they didn't really know exactly where the young players were. Cause remember in 2020, there was no minor league baseball. So, you know, 21 began and remember Hernandez is playing second base and this, well, and Rosario just decided he didn't want to hit until he got shipped over to Atlanta. So they decided this year, they were not going to, and they told me this, block these guys with these one-year veterans just kind of there. A bullpen guy is a little different, but what it would take a spot, that they've been getting all these prospects, talking about all these prospects, planning for all these prospects. So we got to really play all these prospects. And when one of them fails, plug in another prospect. So they went back the way they were. And now they went back on the trail again, the prospect trail, prospecting trail. And here's what we're looking at, Terry. Mm -hmm. The Guardians, as they head into tonight's game, are tied for first place in the middle of June. I don't think many people would have been saying that at the start of the season when they decided to go young, like you're talking about. 35 and 28. They're 8 and 2 in their last 10. They've won 7 of their last 8. And how are they doing this? I think they're even sixteen to twenty, isn't it? Something like that. I, that might be right. Yeah, I think I yeah. think so. But I, how how are they doing this, Terry? I mean, we saw the youth movement that was put in place at the start of the season. 
and everything is falling into place, it seems like. Well, the pitching's been really good. That's what's helping. I think the most underrated thing is the bullpen. Um, it ends up with Class A closing these games out. Because think about it. If he were having a bad year, boy, would we be moaning. They have all these leads, and they're blowing them all. And What, they had three consecutive games in a row and on double plays? I mean, you could say, yeah, there's a certain degree of luck to that. But there's also a pitcher who throws a hard sinker that you end up hitting the ball on the ground. All right, let's let's talk about Emmanuel Class A for a second okay. here. So here's a guy who throws 100 miles an hour plus when he comes in with a, a cut fastball that goes over 100. His slider gets up between 97, 98, 99 miles an hour. And I was reading Paul Owens' game story from Minnesota last night. I thought that was a really good quote from uh, Sam Hentges. He said that when they scored in the 11th, he goes, as soon as we scored that run in the 11th, I turned to Eli Morgan and I said, that's the ball game. Yeah. And that's kind of what it's getting to be with. I mean, someone who could develop into like an Araldus Chapman type of player where if you get into the ninth inning with the lead, just like Hentges says, the game's over. And he might be headed down there. Have you, have you – seen any kind of a Cleveland reliever with this kind of stuff since boy, I don't know the night Mike Jackson didn't have this kind of stuff. No, I don't Mesa, think. Jose Mesa threw really Jose hard Mesa with mm-hmm. a slider. Um, this guy's got a lot more composure than Mesa. You know, Mesa, that's what happened with Mesa pitched a long time, but he would have uh, like a really good year and then he flounder and then he lose the closers job. Then he go to another team. Then he all of a sudden have a good year as a closer and, up and down. I don't think that's going to happen with this guy. Uh, I mean, all closers have rough, rough periods, but I don't see him just kind of losing his composure. What is it about him that makes you say that, Terry? Number one, he, he has control. If you notice that, he isn't walking a lot of guys. And we should uh, kind of get those stats up as we're talking. But he, he has a lot of control. Secondly, um, he just seems to have that, uh, the, you know, first of all, he, he's big and strong. I mean, that that's important. And then also, he has a couple pitches he could throw for strikes. It's not just control of one. He has a couple of them. And it looks like he's pretty good at taking coaching, uh, it seems to be. So, remember, when you see Class A, just think, what was that trade? Boy, I don't even remember. What was Corey it? Corey Kluber. From Emmanuel Classe and the Shields. And I remember well, going back. Uh, I'm sorry, Terry, go ahead. Yeah. It happened. And I want to say, I know it was a Sunday because I'm sitting in the back of a Browns press box on the road. It might have been in Dallas. And I'm on this mini conference call with Chris Antonetti. And he's talking about Emmanuel Classe. And I'm sitting there going, they just traded Corey Kluver for a guy I never heard of. He had come up briefly with, I think, Texas right then, and I'm looking him up. And now, granted, uh, Kluber had had, uh, was coming off of uh, an iffy year, um, but still, it's, and now they've got him signed up long term. Yeah, so he's signed through 2028, and mm-hmm. it, there's a team option for the last two seasons in 27 and 28. I think those are both for $10 million. And boy, if you think about a closer that he could become at $10 million in 27 and 28. That is yes. quite a bargain, but I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Terry. You, when you talked about his size and how big and strong he mm-hmm. is, we've seen pitchers through the years who throw a hundred, but they're maybe built a little slider 
mm -hmm. slighter. I, sh I don't want to say slider, but they're real slighter. And their motion looks really violent. Like they really have to put a lot of effort mm -hmm. into getting that velocity. And you're right. He's so big and, and, and kind of physically imposing as a pitcher that he, he doesn't look like he has a really violent motion to get that kind of velocity when you watch him. He's listed as 6'2", 205, and I think both of us. But then maybe he looks bigger because he throws so hard. I mean, this year, in 29 innings, he's walked four. He's given up one homer. He struck out 31. The last two years, let's just look at those two. In uh, okay, uh, 98 innings, 20 walks, three homers. So, in other words, he stays away from the lead to calamity for relievers, the home run ball and the, uh, the walks. And I guess he's going to give up a certain amount of hits, but, but I mean, this guy, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, since coming, do you know what his ERA since coming to the Indians is or the, well, Indian guardians. It's gotta be in the ones, doesn't it? One, three, six. Hard to imagine he's going to keep that up, but it's one three six, and the one year he was with Texas, uh, when he at the end of two thousand nineteen, he had a two thirty one. So his ERA so far two thirty one one twenty nine one fifty. I mean, you know, it's just it's eye popping. And I remember I was really surprised because he is the first reliever that they have given a long term contract to. They always went year to year with Cody. Uh, uh, with well, well, they, they inherited Miller on a two year deal, but they did it with Mesa. And they did it with um, uh, Perez, Cody Allen. Cody Allen. I was trying to think who else. I'm sure there were other guys, but the immortal Joe Burrow. I mean, it was guy had a five ERA and saved like 40 games for the uh, for Cleveland that one year. Well, I think he's going to get really strong consideration for the All Star game this year with the way he's going, and that's coming up pretty fast. And but he also uh, he deserves, he deserves it. Yep. David, your setup guys, Eli Morgan, he gave up a homer the other day, and that might be the one thing that uh, Morgan may be a bit prone to is the home runs because he tries to throw that, that high fastball. Um, but, you know, his control, the changeup makes him really good. Uh, Henches, Sam Henches, who I've had no faith in, zero. I haven't really talked a lot about that in the paper or anywhere else. But my wife and I told her a couple of times, I just, I'm not buying this guy, you know, because I just seen to me his control wasn't good and it looked like his kind of composure. Well, that's the thing about young guys. You just don't know. And what De Los Santos, who I never heard of, another guy they just pulled out of somewhere, you know, he's pitched well. Uh, and we'll see, you know, they, they say Karinczyk throwing better at the Columbus. We'll see how that pays up, plans out. Now, see, Karinczyk's the opposite, though. Uh, control problems. Emotion problems. Great stuff. There's your great stuff guy. But you don't feel, I don't know if a whole lot of people, when he was stepped to the mound, go, well, this game's over. Yeah, and he's going to have to work some stuff out in the minors. Um, but, Terry, let's move to, this, to the starting rotation a little bit. I, I want to talk about uh, Aaron Savali last night mm -hmm. and coming off the gluteus injury. Nobody was really sure what, the Guardians were going to get from him last night. He comes back, he throws five innings and a win against the Twins uh, to put them into a tie for first place. And that's just another shot in the arm for this pitching staff. They have a lot of games coming up, a lot of, and including yes. two double headers over the last couple of weeks. And having someone like him coming back and being able to put up some uh, 
some quality starts is going to mean a lot, isn't it? Well, if you think about his ERA from when he hurt his finger last year until the other night when he came back was well over five, close to six. And it seemed to me he just didn't look like that same guy at all in terms of his control and everything that he was before he got hurt. Because remember, he was on his way to an all-star season when he, when he hurt that finger. And I have to admit that I get a little nervous when guys hurt fingers. Oh, boy, now, I know, now I'm walking down a road that I can't remember the name. They had a guy named Adam Miller in the middle 90s. If you look him up, he was a prime prospect, uh, Cleveland did. And he hurt his, um, I want to say his right index finger, and never could come back. And then there, they had uh, a guy named uh, White. He was uh, traded to with Hibaldo for Hibaldo Jimenez. Uh, and he was another guy, first-round pick, same thing, hurt his finger, then came back and blew his elbow, and then he ended up uh, out of baseball. So finger injuries always kind of, you don't hear a lot about them, but they make me nervous. Uh and so I was glad to see he seemed to have good grip on his curveball. And that's so you, you turn around, you have McKenzie, and then you have Bieber. And I don't want to hear any more about Bieber's velocity. Bieber's getting people out. And if, if Bieber's going to be able to throw 200 innings, throw 91 miles an hour with an ERA under three, fine. He knows what he's doing. In fact, you know, I was watching him the other day. I used to compare him. Before, kind of a young Jim Palmer because of long lean, how he was. But, David, what I see now with his uh, breaking ball, how it's getting sharper, it's almost a Burt Blylev in like 12 to 6 curveball. Really? You can throw it to righties, you can throw it to lefties. By the way, how about that the kind of company throwing him in? But he is that good. And what we need to do is just make sure he doesn't wear out that shoulder. And we make sure that Terry Francona doesn't pitch him 120 pitches a game like he did a few times last year. So those are the, uh, the, the, when you have those three there. And, and Quantrill is a guy that I would look at for them. If I could get him on a reasonable long-term contract, uh, I would. Because I think he's going to pitch quite a long time in the big leagues. Because the other thing he has already shown in his career, Dave, is he can go to the, mo- go to the minor start to say that. No, we don't, not that. Go to the bullpen and do it well. Because remember, he was a high pick. I think it was number seven overall pick by San Diego. They kept trying to make him a starter in the big leagues. He struggled. They put him in the bullpen. He has some success. Then he gets traded to Cleveland, and um, he um, they wanted to give him the starting job in the spring of 21. And what happened was he was so bad in spring training, I was there. They ended up finally just sort of putting him in the bullpen, and that was when they gave it to Logan Allen. Who, pitched, who was a wonderful in Arizona, and that was the end of that. And then eventually Quantrill came out of the bullpen and grabbed on that starting um, job. And they said it was, it was kind of like what they did with Carlos Carrasco when they put him in the bullpen. They simplified some things. They call it running him through the Cleveland pitching factory. That's what some of the baseball people at the uh, Guardians call me. we got to run him through. The, now, sometimes it doesn't always work. They thought they were going to be able to do that Logan Allen, too, but they never were able to get, get him straightened out. But they have come up with more pitchers. I mean, Fangrass, who studies all the analytics and that, they're just staggered by a Cleveland keeps coming up with pitchers. They are not highly regarded for the most part. They don't throw exceptionally hard. I mean, we're talking about Class A, but the rest of these guys, 92, 93, 
You know, it's not that they just know how to pitch. It's amazing. I mean, these guys are so good at their jobs when it comes to develop. They, they've got to be among the top three in baseball, if not the best at it. It's, it's really something. Dan O'Dowd, he's a former um, Tribe VP who then went on for years to be running the uh, Colorado Rockies and now does MLB, told me, and I've heard him say it on the air also, that he believes no one in baseball is better at developing pitchers than Cleveland. And, and that goes from the, the major league drafted, staff on down. Yep. Yeah. The night they drafted Gavin Williams. Remember that one year they drafted all those pitchers? I think it was two years ago. I think it was 18 of them. That was a Gavin Williams draft and some others. He goes, you watch. You're going to come up with a couple starters out of that group. And it'll be one or two of these guys that we're barely mentioning on draft night. Yep. And they keep doing it. It's, it's one of the most amazing things I've seen in baseball. I got to be honest. So, all right, Terry. So the Guardians, they have two more against the Twins uh, tonight and tomorrow. And then they're going to be home for a big homestand. It's going to be three against Boston, four next week against the Twins. And first place might might be on the line there. And then a big three-game series against the hated Yankees on 4th of July weekend. That should be a fun weekend down mm-hmm. at the ballpark. So uh, just interesting. I, I just want to mention real quick, Terry, I, I pulled some salary information. And you dropped this into some of your columns. I mean, the Yankees are in first place in the NL East. They're 15-18. They have a $205 million payroll. The Dodgers are first in the NL West, $203 million. The Phillies, $300 million payroll, 36-33. and 33. They're in third place. I didn't realize place. theirs was that high. Oh, yeah. The Padres are spending $150 more, $154 million. They're 43-27. and 27. They're in second place in the NL West. Um, you know, the Angels, 115 million. They're 33 and 38. You look at what the Guardians are doing. They have the 26th highest payroll out of 30 teams, mm-hmm. about 64 million, and they're 35. What is uh, Tampa Bay? Do you have it in front I don't of you? have the exact number, but they're, I think they're about five or six spots ahead uh, of the Guardians in terms of yeah. ranking it for most expensive, but they're, they're spending more than the Guardians are. Um, from what I remember, but just when you look at those numbers, it's just, it's amazing what the guardians have been able to do with the payroll mm-hmm. they're spending. So, uh, and a lot of it has to do with not only, you know, drafting and developing, but when they trade for these guys, uh, the remarkable thing, the, the trade of like a staggering deal, the Clevenger deal. I think most of us know, you know, there, you can go around the diamond. Naylor was in that deal and, and, and uh, hedges is in that deal. Quantrill's in that deal. Owen Miller's in that deal. And now another pitcher, Joey Cantillo, C-A-N-T-I-L-L-O, at Akron, the last I looked, he had a 2.10 ERA and was averaging like 12 strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, last year, he had a bit of a sore arm, so we didn't see a lot of him. And he's another one. I mean, they just keep coming. They have a low, the first Logan Allen didn't work out, so they have another Logan Allen. This one, Logan, Logan T. T. Allen, yep. they drafted in the second round. He's at Akron and he's really good. So, and by the way, when he, and the fans, when we keep my mind about the uh, uh, going back and starting over again, when they want to trade for a catcher who can hit, uh, they're not going to do it because they have Bo Mayor. They just moved him up to AAA. You can see they're priming him, maybe even for a call up at the end of this year and certainly for next year. All right, some big games coming up for the Guardians, and we'll see if they're still in first place at the end of this run. Some some challenging opponents, but. They have risen to the challenge. There's no doubt about it. So, all right, let's get in some, get in some Browns, Terry. Um, big news yesterday, Deshaun Watson, his a- attorney announced that they have settled with 20 of the 24 women. 
And it looks like they're making moves to kind of start putting this all behind them. Uh, I know you wrote a column right after the announcement was made that the, that the settlements had happened. Uh, where are you at with the Deshaun Watson stuff right now? And what do you see happening next? Well, it's such set it up so that he doesn't get on an indefinite suspension anyway. That was the fear of the Browns. And even mine, I mean, who wants, regardless of how you feel about the trade or whatever, nobody wants this thing just saying, we're going to deal with it later. Retire to later. So this should take that off the table. So now they should, you, you want it to be all season or eight games or pick a number, but they should be able to come up with something um, that will really uh, allow the Browns and their fans to accept, okay, this is the reality uh, that we're facing here with the quarterback situation. Uh, I don't know about the four cases that are out. I didn't realize this. I heard, uh, I think it was Jake Trotter from ESPN mentioned this. Uh, when they tried to settle cases earlier to implement a deal to Miami, I'm talking about a year ago when Texas was trying, the Texans were trying to trade them to Miami. Uh, they had the 22 lawsuits back then. 18 agreed to uh, accept the settlement. Four did not. And he still have four holdouts. So whether it's the same four or not uh, is unclear. But I also think that that's enough for the NFL to now go ahead and proceed with whatever they're going to come up with. And I, I do know there's got to be – I have a You're not alone. I think a lot of fans do too. Yeah. And so let's just see. I mean, I just cannot wait. All right. He gets X amount of games. So I could write about, okay, this is a situation with him. Jacoby Brissett, now what? You know, I, I, I guess the, I played a little bit with that last Sunday where I kind of went high with saying, well, I still think they could win 10 games with Brissett and somebody else, if, you know, with that. And basically, you know, David, what'd you think of that, Colin? About the backup quarterbacks? No, what I said, okay, let's, let's play a season without Watson. Oh, yeah, right. Um, You know, there's a number of ways the Browns could go here, and I think they are such planners. They are trying to make contingency plans for every possible outcome. And I I just – you and Scott Patsko of our staff have been writing about this this week. So if Jacoby Brissett is the starter, then what? Like, where do you go from there? And I think everybody's got different opinions on that. Actually, we have a Hey Terry question later on that. Mm -hmm. But you've delved into kind of what is the – who's the third stringer and what should they do and – uh, I don't know. It's it's kind of an interesting question because the, the third quarterback might never play, but as we saw last season, when you need a guy as a backup, you really need him, and you really need him to play well. Well, that's because the third quarterback is is, is Joshua Dodds. They don't have a number two. I mean, you know, the depth chart right now is Watson one, uh, Brissett two, what, Dobbs three. That's fine. But if you take Watson off, you don't have a number two. I'm not going into the season with one guy throwing 17 passes in the NFL, and that's Dobbs. What I mentioned before on why the Browns think that they could win a fair amount of games without Watson if need be, a lot of it actually you know, hands on, uh, hangs on the kicker. They think that they cost themselves a couple of games of poor field goal kicking last year. They were 4-10, uh, I think, after the – mid-season break or whatever uh, on field goals. So, and also, if you just throw, throw the ball the team the other team all the time, they are equipped to play ball position and win close games 
assuming you don't make turnovers, and assuming you kick your field goals. And they went out, and they really did try to, they even got a better punter to make special teams better. They think that Brissett, who has a track record of not throwing a lot of interceptions, won't throw a lot of interceptions. And then you're back to, uh, you know, running it, the short passes, all that kind of stuff. But you're relying on the defense being a top 10 defense. It has to be. If they're, if they're not going to have Watson in the lineup, you're right. They have to, they have to be that and they have to play. They're going to have to win some close games. Like you were talking about. David, they, I'm curious. Cause this is more, I feel more confident always talking about baseball and basketball than football. I really do. Um, what do you think of that thinking on their part? I think they have a lot of faith in the running game and the offensive line, but mm-hmm. you know how it works, Terry. Sometimes you have a quarterback who's so good, he can throw guys open yeah, and he can fit the ball into windows. And the Browns receiving core, and sometimes it's the opposite where your receivers are so good that the quarterback has a little bit more latitude and, and can be off a little bit. But I don't think this Browns receiving core is going to be so good that they're going to be giving Jacoby Brissett huge windows to throw into. And can he, can he elevate the guys that are going out catching passes for him? I don't know. I don't know that he can. They seem to think he can make all the throws. I, I don't know. I'm going to have to see it with this receiving core. How open are these guys going to be? If they're wide open, it makes it easier on him. If there's if people are playing press and they can't get open or whatever, and he's got to fit into some tight windows, I mean, there's a reason that he's not a long-term starter somewhere. I the talked Browns to somebody who knows about Brissett's watched him a lot. He said he's very good on uh, crossings patterns, throwing passes in the middle of the field. He said, and he looks fairly accurate doing that. He said, but you'll be surprised on how like he'll overthrow guys downfield or he's not as accurate downfield. It isn't just totally lack of arm strength. It just seems like he's just not as good at that. And that's probably what has uh, prohibited him from being a starter. Yeah. I mean, when it's third and eight and the Steelers come up and they're playing press man, is Jacoby Brissett going to be able to get the ball to somebody nine yards down the field? That's a big, that's a big question. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. And then now when you turn to uh, the other part of the thinking, they had the worst field goal kicking in the NFL last year, 72%. That was the lowest percentage. And on top of that, there were times when they should have kicked it, but didn't because they didn't trust the kicker. Well, I mean, from what we've seen from Cade York, that won't be an issue this year. <laughs> They're going to trust yeah, him I mean, 60. Well, he'll kick it far enough. He just got to kick it in the right direction. I don't know whatever Justin Tucker makes with Baltimore. I'd have to look it up. But I would, if they, I could get him here, I'd double his salary. What a weapon this guy is. I mean, you're sitting there on defense in a close game. And I remember one time I'm watching the, the, uh, Tucker kicked the ball, you know, just practicing in the late front towards the end. And somebody says he's pretty good. I said, yeah, he just kicked that last one over Kelly's Island. I mean, this guy's practicing 60-yard field goals before the game in the wind. You know, he's just – and, I mean, it wasn't just let me show how, um, you know, how strong I am. He's practicing, you know, like Phil Dawson would to really look at the different elements there. And um, it, it's phenomenal what a weapon that could be if this guy could do it, if, if York could be uh, – be turned into a Pro Bowl-type kicker. Yeah, I mean, think about that. If the Browns can get to the 40-yard line of the opposition, they got a chance to get points with yes, this guy. Yes, exactly. And, yep. and it changes how the defense looks at you and everything else. Where when you have, remember that Greg Joseph and these guys that couldn't kick more than a 41-yard field goal on a good day? You know, you're thinking, I don't care. 
you know, we're going to just make sure, you know, we're just keep things back. So. All right. So Terry training camp is uh, going to be here on the 27th of July. Yeah. It's going to be here before we know it. Um, I want to, we'll talk next week, maybe, or when we do our next podcast about the offense, I know you've written about yes. the revamping and reinvention of the Browns passing game and whether we're going to see that. It seems yeah. like we will, but we can get into that down the road. Um, and we, we probably will have a dis- decision on Deshaun Watson from the NFL by then. So July 27th will be here soon. And, uh, We'll see what happens in the meantime. Hey, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, we will get into some Cavaliers. I know you want to talk about uh, Mike Brown, his hire in Sacramento. Had you thinking about the Cavs and their long-term plan? We've got uh, some NBA draft stuff we can talk about and your faith column, and we will also get to a couple of Harry Terry questions. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We are back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, the Cavaliers are on your mind because Mike Brown has been named the coach of the Sacramento Kings, and it got you thinking about the Cavs' culture, their long-term plan, and they're in a pretty good spot compared to a lot of franchises, aren't they? Well, what was starting, the draft was coming, and I was kind of looking for a, a column because I, I have not done enough work on this draft to, to really – talk intelligently about it of course even when i talk intelligently about it i find out i'm not so intelligent uh, <laughs> i mean last year i'm like well i think i would take Mulvey, but i'm not sure and you know it was like really all over the map but so i looked at mike brown and he is in the last 16 years the sacramento kings have not had a winning season they have not made the playoffs they have had not six coaches not eight coaches not 10 coaches. Mike Brown is the 12th coach in 16 years for the Sacramento Kings. And they have tried all kinds of coaches. How about some of these names? Eric Musselman, Keith Smart, Mike Malone, Tyrone Corbett, George Carl, Luke Walton. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting some in there. Alvin Gentry. But I mentioned all those guys because they all had Cleveland connections. Now, in the same 16-year span, I mean, Cleveland's had seven coaches. Mike Brown twice. Uh, so that's a, a little different thing there, but you look at that and at least when you go into this draft, you have a feeling that the Cavs are, have an idea how they want to play. They should have a coach and GM or slash president in place for quite a while. If JB Bickerstaff, by the way, makes it through this full season, then they have been here three years plus 11 games. That's the longest reign of any Cavs coach since the first time around a Mike Brown. Go figure, huh? Yeah. And now when you look at that, a lot of these teams are sitting there and now remember when you miss the playoff 16 years in a row, David, that means you're in the lottery 16 years in a row or you have a lottery pick at least, you know, getting in the lottery doesn't guarantee you a whole lot. That's a long time, though. I mean, Terry, they're basically whatever the Guardians are to baseball, the Kings are the opposite in basketball. Yeah. 
they're they, they don't develop anybody they're not uh bringing in free agents they're not building rosters right there's no reason you should go that long without having some kind of success right and they're hoping mike brown will come in and we'll see how mike does there um i always thought mike was an okay coach and I and he's had next to Steve Kerr for the last six years. He was his top assistant. Mike's problem was I thought his offenses were kind of antiquated. Um, by the way, Kyrie Irving LeBron did too. Up Mike Brown <laughs> destroyed him his second year here. He hated how Mike want, was demanding he guard people, and you know that was the first hint of Kyrie Irving being very difficult to deal with. I remember one NBA person said, you know, it was the best thing LeBron James did in his entire NBA career. And I'm thinking, well, the 2016 title. He said, well, no, well, you could say that, but this is part of it. It's keeping Kyrie Irving in line. Nobody else has been able to do it. It lasted only three years, but he did it. Well, and you write about this in your commentary about how important culture is. And it's, it is, yeah. it's about player relationships, but anybody can, show up in a suit or whatever and, and drop some X's and O's on a board. But you look at the successful teams in NBA history and it's been about culture and stability. And JB Bickerstaff and Chris Fedor wrote a feature on this. He's got these five words mm -hmm. that he believes define the Cavaliers culture. You know, one more is one of them. You make one more pass. You do one more free throw in practice. You do one more. So he's got this whole series of words, but you think about the, what the Warriors are doing with, with Steve Kerr and that front office and the changes they've had and for them to win another championship and the Spurs under Greg Popovich and their front offices that they've had there. It's, there's like, it's, it's like the, the Cavs way of playing. It's the Spurs way of doing things, the Warriors way. And it's like, if you don't have a way, you're, you're away. Like you're not going to win. Right. It's gotta, it is a lot about culture because that's what you lean on when things go bad. And you saw it at Golden State because you could argue, yes, they had the uh, interloper of Kevin Durant came in. And they won those two titles with Durant. But they won two without him. And the remarkable thing is they went, when Durant left, it was almost like LeBron left. Because remember, Clay Thompson got hurt. And a couple of years ago, the worst record in the NBA. And they turn around and they put this thing back together and they win it again. Boston has more talent. Boston has more talent. I'll say it over and over again. Boston has more talent. And I don't think their coach is bad. But they ran into culture. You ran into Steph and Draymond. How about Steph was number seven pick in the draft. Clay Thompson, number 11 pick in the draft. Draymond Green, a number 35 pick in the draft. You know, they got Wiggins in there, who had always been kind of a selfish player, everything else. And he found out when you go to Golden State, you better defend, you better move the ball. And this is how we do it. And what I'm hoping is in Cleveland, we started to see it. You know, JB started to get those guys to play a certain way. And even when they fell apart at the end with injuries or whatever, they didn't turn on each other. It wasn't any of that. They were just struggling. But you saw they still defended fairly well, especially when they would be able to get, uh, get Allen back on the floor. And you have the ability to have Allen, Mobley, and Garland together for quite a while. And Markadon's got, I think, three more years on his contract. So we're not sitting here going, yeah, I mean, people are kind of agonizing over sex. And, okay, I I'd love to have him on a one-year contract coming off the bench. But if not, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, I'll find another guy that can come off the bench and score. Uh, but that, this, it, you got a chance here. But when you look at Detroit, 
or you look at Orlando and you look at Sacramento and you look at some of these other bad teams, you tell me, I mean, I was watching, I remember watching Oklahoma city at the end of the year. It reminded me of those Cavs teams before last year, a bunch of kids just running around cluelessly. You know, you can see there's some talent there, but what is it? Well, people know what the Cavs are. There's no doubt about that going forward. So Yeah, and, and by the way, when was the last time you said that other than, okay, you know the other Cavs are about LeBron. Basically, they're about LeBron, and they're about having three-point shooters around LeBron. That's kind of how they played it. Uh, and so uh, that, that, was, that, was the, that was the team. And LeBron in the playoffs when he was in Cleveland, especially the second time around, David, he was marvelous. In fact, the two best performances of the playoffs for LeBron, his first year here when he dragged that Matthew Delvadova and all those guys. Remember, they had all those injuries. Love was hurt. Kyrie was hurt. He dragged them to the finals. And his last year here when he played all 82 games and he dragged that team to the finals, winning two seven games to do it. But it was all about LeBron. Well, this, is, this team isn't all about one guy. And they got it going. They got it going. Yep. Good good foundation. So, Terry, we're running a little bit long here, but I do want to talk about the draft real quick tomorrow night. Uh, Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers, covers the Cavaliers, he put up his mock draft earlier in the week. And I have seen Malachi Branham from Ohio State and St. Vincent St. Mary going anywhere from like 6 to 17 mm-hmm. in this draft. And in Chris Fedor's draft, he had him going uh, falling to 14, and the Cavs taking him at number 14. Uh, and Chris writes, uh, Branham isn't isn't is not an ideal positional fit. He plays the two, Cleveland's most crowded position, as we know. But his three-level scoring and playmaking were both missing down the stretch last season, forcing All-Star point guard Darius Garland into an exhausting do-it-all role. Branham also provides roster insurance as the Cavs head into a summer of negotiations with Sexter and Karis LeVert. So how do you feel about a 6'5", two-guard and Malachi Branham joining the, this mix that they have right now? Well, he can shoot. At least he showed he could shoot in college. That helps. Um, another 19-year-old, it's hard to know how much to rely because if we had looked at any of these guys when they were 19, Sexton, um, poor Darius, yeah. Garland analytically was like the worst player in the league had played like 20 minutes a game. Now, Mobley is the exception. That's why, Mo, you know, Mobley, and maybe Mobley becomes the superstar because I haven't seen a rookie like that since LeBron. And I'm, I'm saying his rookie season was better than Kyrie's when he was rookie of the year because of his all-around game. I have to watch it because I don't like Kyrie. You know, I just got to done great things. But um, so, yeah, Branham, uh, the kid from Kansas, I did do some – because uh, Fedor told me to do some work on him, that they like him. Uh, O'Shea, I, I always get that the name wrong. Agbaji is his last yeah, name. Baji, yeah, he's uh, anyway. He's six foot six, and he looks like a really good catch and shoot shooter. Catch the ball, shoot it from distance, and he looks like he's pretty athletic. He doesn't handle the ball especially well. His positional defense is pretty good. He's a four-year player at Kansas, which you don't see very often. I would be interested in somebody like that because I think he would be a nice fit for them because they need more three-point shooting. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a guy that loves a three-pointer, by the way, either, but you need some of it. So, uh, and he would probably be more ready to help right away than Brandon. But you have to take a two-to-three window uh, outlook with the Cavs. All right, so the NBA draft is Thursday night. 
We'll see. Chris Fedor has also been hearing the Cavs are open to trading down if there's a handful of people that they – I bet they are. Yeah, so it's going to be a night of intrigue, no doubt. Uh, Terry, your faith in you, Colin, this week, I was just fascinated by this. There's this gentleman you met uh, named Rob Sharkey that you ran into, and just a really remarkable example of someone who wasn't dealt the greatest hand, but, boy, he passed away recently, I know, but uh, really made the most out of the life he did have here. Can you talk about Rob Sharkey, how you met him, and just what kind of person never, he was? I've never quite met a person like him with with the physical things he deals with. He's at the, He was at St. Edward Village, the same place my mom the African-American lady, Melba Hardison, has been for the last four and a half years. Rob had been there for 10 years. He was born um, 2.9 pounds, three years or three months premature, uh, 90% blind. Basically, his limbs just don't work. And he grew him to being a huge guy. He looks like he's kind of a linebacker. I mean, he was big. So, unfortunately for him, that meant when everybody was taking care of him, bathing, there was always like two people all the time. And he found a way to get a master, get a, a undergrad degree in psychology from Kent, and then a master's in counseling. Then he got a master's in pastoral ministry from Ursuline College. Um, he ran Bible studies. A lot of it was on the phone and things. And he had the most upbeat attitude. When he would talk to him, he'd look at you like way to the left because he had 10% vision out of the corner of one of his eyes. And he also had this tremendous hearing. But I'll tell you one thing. If you whisper to Ron Robb, if you're in the same county, you probably heard it. And just his, his outlook on life, and um, it, it was just it was an amazing thing. And so I was talking to him, and we were planning to do a story, actually, that hopefully would be done before he passed away because suddenly he got hit by cancer, and it just finished him off quickly. And I said, well, what do you want people to know? And you know, he, he just kept saying, there was a song, it's a Catholic, primarily a Catholic song, but I've heard it in Protestant circles too. It's like, be not afraid, I go before you. You know, it's one of those. And that was always kind of his theme song. Because he's, you know, fight fear, you know, from there. And it, it's like when he would go, somebody would wheel him in, and right away they're talking to his mother or, or the caregiver like he wasn't there. And it just... He was an inspiration to me, and I think it'll be it'll speak to a lot of people. The column will. I'm not. I'm not even doing a very good job talking about my own column, which is sad. Well, it's you really did a wonderful job telling his story, Terry. You know, um, this when you wrote the column, when I read it, it reminded me there's a Guinness beer commercial where a bunch of guys are playing wheelchair basketball, mm-hmm. and you assume that they're all in wheelchairs because they're all in wheelchairs playing basketball, and then at the end of the commercial, they all get up except for one guy, and he's the one who's in the wheelchair. And when you when you're going to that commercial, you make an assumption based yeah. on what you're seeing. And Rob's point was, listen, don't assume something about someone who might have uh, cerebral palsy or, or cancer or something. Go into it with an open heart and an open mind and treat them as you would anybody else. And just don't make assumptions and, and just connect on a human level with them. And I thought that was really something that resonated that he said to you. Like, don't feel sorry for me. I don't want a pity party. I just yeah. want to get to know you. And I thought it was a really important that point that he made. I don't know any other way. Mm-hmm. Now, periodically, like anybody else is in anywhere long-term care, uh, they have, they're having labor problems like almost any other business. And so you'd have to wait and wait and wait. I mean, when I would be sitting there with him, David, he would he started to lose his voice. I had to take the water with the with the straw and put the straw in his mouth. I mean, he couldn't he couldn't pick up anything. 
And he would just kind of there. Sometimes he'd cough and then he'd laugh. I'd just wipe my face, you know, wipe his face. Then he'd go back to whatever we were talking about. Um, just a, a fascinating guy, extremely intelligent, yet had the ability to speak like the common guy. He just, he just did. I was fascinated by him. So that's coming this Sunday. Yeah, check that out for sure. Sunday's Plain Dealer, and it'll be on cleveland.com on Saturday morning. So, all right, Terry, we're going to get to the what the fans want, the Hey Terry segment of the podcast. You okay. ready? All mm-hmm. right, here we go. This one is from regular listener Jack and Erie. He says, hey, guys, do you think it's possible with this lineup performing for the Guardians so much better than when he went out that Fran Mill Reyes, upon his return, will feel less pressure and go the other way, and et cetera? Or am I being overly optimistic? Again, that's Jack I hope and so. Erie. Well, he did hit a home run yesterday. That was a big one, too. Times. But uh, I hope so. Uh, and just they should have him watch Oscar Gonzalez. You know, Oscar's hit a home run, but, you know, Oscar's really just working at hitting the ball hard. They're working Oscar out. I remember Chris Antonetti told me early on, he said, now it's going to come. They're going to bust him inside and throw those breaking balls in the middle of the left-hand batter's box. So we're going to see how he handles that. Because he likes the outside pitch because his arms are so wrong, he's so strong. But they want to throw it like you need a telephone pole to hit it. But just do what Oscar is doing. You know, try to lay off those balls and just hit it hard. You're so strong and you're so big. I mean, he's hit 38 and 30 homers the previous two years of 162 games. Reyes did. The power's there. So I hope he's right. I mean, if he does, you start getting him going in that lineup, you know, with the – how about Jose last night? He's in there. He's back in there with the thumb injury. He bloops the ball in the center field. He just blows around first base, head first in the second base, you know, helmet flying, dirt all over the place. Um, he has just taken over the team, I just think, this year fully after the extension. I, he tried some last year after Lindor left because Lindor was sort of the leader. And he's leading it his way, which is certainly a lot more uh, Sandlot-style baseball you know, all out. And I just, I don't know. He's so much fun. This team is just so much fun. Yeah. This is going to be a really fun homestand. I think for people who are able to get out there. So, all right, Terry, this one's from John Maimon from Henderson, Hendersonville, North Carolina. He says, Hey Terry, I just read Scott Patsko's emergency QB article. One question. How do you feel about a Kaepernick campaign? And he says, hashtag Kaepernick. By the way, what's a hashtag smiley face? Yes. Uh, what do you think about that? A Colin Kaepernick signing. Would be, if you bring him in, then you have, we're, we're going to the assumption of Neil Watson. So then you have Brissett as your starter. You have your backup being Dobbs with 17 passes total. And when was the last time that Colin Kaepernick played in an NFL game? I would guess 2017. Yeah, it was 2016. 2016, okay. Long time. And he's creeping up on 34. What I would like to see for Kaepernick, go someplace like San Francisco or somewhere else where he doesn't have to play right away. Even if he's a third quarterback in the beginning, he just he needs to play. He needs to play a lot in the preseason. He needs to play. And, and the coaches need to see him play to see what he has left that I mean six years I cannot think of another player who was out of the NFL for six years came back and played well 
Now there may be one, but I know I don't think there's a quarterback. So it's a hard thing that he's up against. You know, there's a variety of emotions that come up about him. But from a pure football standpoint, uh, I can't do that. Now, if you wanted to have him be the third guy and you brought in another veteran guy in front, you know, okay, whatever. But uh, it's, a, it's a real long shot. Yeah, and the last time we saw Colin Kaepernick, I think, was at the Michigan spring game when he did a workout at halftime. I thought that might get some people calling him for workouts, and it doesn't seem like it's really happened. So yeah, we shall see. So, all right, last one, Terry. This one is from Mary Perkowski. She says, hey, Terry, will Kevin Love still be with the Cavs when the season starts? I hope so. I think, I think he will, Mary, and I'm just guessing on that as you do with anything else, but Now, if things don't go well for the Cavs, he's in the final year of his contract. He's the kind of guy that gets traded at midseason. But I haven't heard any Kevin Love rumors at all right now because that would involve a big trade of somebody coming back. Um, now, the guy I still want them, I've been on my kind of one-man campaign for Michael Conley from uh, Junior from um, bringing him in from Utah. But I, I've not heard – I don't think that trade makes sense going that way. And uh, so – Meantime, he was exactly what – that was the Kevin Love they gave the money to. They finally got that guy who, who galvanized the younger players, who was, you know, very, very uh, effective coming off the bench and just totally engaged. And he was a part of that chemistry, and I don't want – remember, he and J.B. Bakerstaff go back to his rookie year when he was in Minnesota, and J.B. was a young assistant coach with Minnesota – so I'm. It would have to be a very significant deal, I think, for uh, for them to get rid of him. And it's come a long way from the game where he was pouting and threw the ball in oh, bounds yeah. and gave up a three pointer to well, last season, where he looked like he was having a great year, time. Buy, and yeah, David, I wanted to buy him out right now. At this point last year, around the draft, I, I think I wrote that. I wrote a yeah, lot. Yeah, he had a terrible Olympic tryout, and boy, a lot sure has changed in a year. So yeah. Uh, all right, Terry, I think that's all we got for this week. Uh, anything coming up you want to mention in terms no, of – No, that's uh, it. We had overflow crowds both at the uh, uh, the, the, the Wickliffe Library and uh, – and uh, I'm sorry, the Willoughby Library and also at uh, Walls of Books in Parma. Nice store, by the way, Walls of Books in Parma, Tom, if you haven't been there. Uh, they have some used books also with a lot of new ones. And I left a bunch of signed books there, so there you go. So get out there and support get out there and buy them all. Might get, might get some signed books. We're in Parmatown where I used to hang out. I drove by my old house on Westminster Drive there, and I looked at it and said, that ranch house looks really small. Not that I live in West Akron in a mansion, but it's like, you know how that is. When you're a kid, you don't think about it. But go, that's a little box there. So the all neighborhood's right, still nice. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So I, I got to get out there and uh, get a book and support the bookstore. So, yeah. um, all right, Terry. Hey, if you want to check out any of Terry's books, visit him at terrypluto.com, right? That'll and do everything it. Everything is there. And be sure to send us some of your questions. We'll get it on the Hey Terry segment next week. You can send it to sports at cleveland.com or find Terry on his Facebook page. So thanks for listening. Have a good week and stay cool out there. It's hot. And watch those stingrays. We'll catch you next time. Uh, there he's talking. <laughs>